0: Day on Against the Grain, it took more than three generations of struggle to win the vote for half the population of the United States. The fight for women's suffrage rose out of the battle for slavery's abolition and later foundered in the backlash against Reconstruction, gaining new life with the social upheavals of the early 20th century. Historian Ellen Carol Bois discusses the advances and setbacks fractures and divisions of the 75-year-long struggle for women's enfranchisement. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. In 1920, women in the United States won the universal right to vote in the wake of decades of struggle. The doubling of the electorate was opposed by many in the establishment, including racist Southern Democrats who feared the enfranchisement of black women. The struggle for the vote took many forms over 75 years, with some urging respectable gradualism and others embracing more radical demands. Joining me to talk about the trajectory of the women's suffrage movement, as well as its complicated racial politics, is Ellen Carol Bois. She's Distinguished Research Professor of History at UCLA and the author of Suffrage, Women's Long Battle for the Vote. Ellen, what would you say sparked the movement for women's suffrage?
1: I guess you would say there are sort of two starting points. The women's rights movement in the United States, in which suffrage was not only just one of the demands, but not the most foremost, began in 1848. Uh, This was a year that was highly historic, both internationally, there were democratic revolutions around Europe and also in the United States. Uh, In that year, uh, the U.S. concluded its first major aggressive war against Mexico, acquiring uh, almost half of Mexico's land and enlarging its own land by a third. And sort of pointing in the other direction, it was also the year that the first of a series of political parties focused on attacking slavery began. Uh, that party was called the Free Soil Party. But within a, a few years, the party that would emerge is was called the Republican Party, very different than our Republican Party, but its ancestor. So um, the you could say that there are sort of two elements of that. One is a greater push for democracy, Uh, uh, and there were Lucretia Mott, for instance, said that the women's rights movement in the United States was the equivalent of the 1848 revolutions of uh, democratic aspiration all over Europe, from France to uh, Germany. Um, Then the other thing that was specific to the United States was the movement to abolish enslavement. And all of the early women's rights people uh, were, uh, one could say they apprenticed in that movement. They learned how to be public figures, they learned how to think politically, they learned how to organize. uh, And they learned uh, about you could say human rights, and began to see that the arguments for the human rights of enslaved people had a, had a lot to say about the arguments uh, in favor of the human rights of what uh, Angela, Gr- Angelina Grimke called the nominally free women, nominally free women. Um, so that's the original start, 1848. The second start, I would say, is in the aftermath of the Civil War uh, about 18 years later. Because at that point, Once African-Americans were freed from enslavement, uh, the question of their status in the country emerged. And uh, we got a series of incredibly crucial constitutional amendments. Um, The first really important amendments to the Constitution, uh, the 13th, which abolished slavery, the 14th, uh, which remains crucial, which made every person born in the United States a citizen of the nation. It was the first time that national citizenship was defined. And finally, the 15th amendment, which uh, began to open the door for black men's right to vote. So all of that um, um, not only uh, made the question of enfranchisement central, the kind of linchpin of citizenship, but, and this is very important, it shifted the locale of the discussions about suffrage to the national level. I say this is important for the following reason. The way the Constitution is written, uh, there's very, very little said about the right to vote. Uh, Congress has minimal um, uh, capacities. It can regulate uh, certain conditions of voting, but control over voting exists at the state level. And we know that because in the world that we live in, uh, battle over uh, the right to vote takes place, not only state by state, but sometimes city and county by city and county. So there was no national uh, control over citizenship. And there was a lot of struggle over the 15th Amendment uh, with some people trying not just to, do what the 15th Amendment did, which is to prohibit states from disfranchising black men, but to entirely change the vote to something that was a right of citizenship and was authorized at the national level. If that had happened, not only would women have been automatically enfranchised, but we ourselves, as the inheritors of that democracy, would be in a much stronger position. That didn't happen. Nonetheless, at that point, the question of women's right to vote became the keystone of the women's rights movement.
0: And we'll return to that period, the way the struggles against slavery and the Civil War shaped the fight for women's suffrage. But I wanna talk a bit more about that period that preceded it in the earliest years and decades of the movement. And and you're emphasizing, of course, that African-American suffrage and women's suffrage has been tightly bound up Um, from the beginning. I wonder if you could tell us more about the women who came together and eventually convened a famous meeting in Seneca Falls, New York, to start militating for the right of women to vote. You mentioned that they all were apprenticed in the movement for abolition. What else can you tell us about the backgrounds of these women Some were Quakers. Uh, What do we know about their class backgrounds and the world out of which they came and which propelled them to fight for the right for women to vote? With one exception, they were all
1: Quakers. The exception was an important one. It was the woman who uh, initiated the Seneca Falls Convention and who became the political philosopher of the suffrage movement for its first uh, half a century, and that was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Seneca Falls is a small city in the middle of New York State uh, that has that was important because it was on the Erie Canal. It was uh, sort of midway between uh, Syracuse and Rochester and that's where Elizabeth Stanton was living at the time with uh, the first I don't know three of her seven children So the the point is that the Seneca Falls uh, Convention, which has gained the uh, uh, iconic nature of the first explicitly women's rights public meeting in the United States, was actually a local meeting. It was mostly city folks and farmers from around the area. Um, Two weeks after the Seneca Falls Convention was held in mid-July, Uh, In some ways, it was reconvened in Rochester, a sort of second element of it. The women were all white. Um, They weren't all women. Uh, There were, I think, maybe a third of the uh, attendees at Seneca Falls were men. Um, Many of them were uh, uh, already politicized uh, through abolition and through the Free Soil Movement and um, they came in groups of friends and sisters um, and relatives uh, to a church in Seneca Falls that interestingly enough was a breakaway Methodist church. It had broken away because uh, some years before, just a few years before, um, a, uh, a few women in that congregation had tried to uh, raise money for um, abolition. And in doing so, they began to critic, they had trouble, Their, their church didn't allow them to do it. And they criticized their minister. And for that, they were thrown out and a breakaway church was formed. And it was in that church that the Seneca Falls Convention was held. Although it was located in a church and it was full of people who were Uh, Protestants of different ilk, uh, no Catholics, Uh, it was uh, already in an atmosphere that had begun to sharpen on the question of the sin and the crime of slavery.
0: Who were the foot soldiers of suffrage in those earlier decades beyond the women whose names we know like Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton?
1: An interesting one is a a young woman, I think her name was Emily Collins, and she read about the uh, Seneca Falls Convention. It was published and only at the time it was announced in the local paper and interestingly enough in nearby Rochester in a newspaper that had just been bought and was being edited by the recently escaped slave Frederick Douglass. It was called the North Star. And she read about it, and then she read about the outcome, and she organized a group of people, a group of women in her town, uh, and they began to basically uh, form a little women's rights community in that town. Let me say something about men who were there. One I've already mentioned, Frederick Douglass. Uh, He was the only black person there, uh, and he was the only man there who understood from his own experience what it meant to not have the right to vote, because as a black man in New York, he, was, he did not meet the very high bar of property qualifications for black men to vote. And it was he who stepped forward. Uh, he came as a kind of journalist. It was he who stepped forward when um, Elizabeth was called on to defend her proposal for a resolution on behalf of women's rights, of women's suffrage, and uh, defended her. And she later credited him with its passage. It passed, it was the only resolution which did not pass unanimously. Uh, Suffrage was some combination of too, uh, too associated with manhood and also too corrupt in the eyes of these Quakers. Uh, and so it was a, it was a long battle for Elizabeth to sort of normalize the issue of women's right to vote.
0: I'm speaking with historian Ellen Carol Du Bois. She is the author of Suffrage: Women's Long Battle for the Vote. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you were describing the gathering of women and some men who came together to struggle for women's rights and subsequently for women's enfranchisement. And I wanted to ask you about the alliances that were made in that period that helped the movement grow and shaped it. You just mentioned Frederick Douglass, a key figure in the movement for abolition of slavery, and you've mentioned how really the struggle for the rights of women to vote and for enfranchisement for African-Americans were you know tied together from the start. What sort of alliances were made in these decades, which subsequently were to fray?
1: Well, I would call uh, women's rights the junior partner of abolition in the pre-Civil War decade. Um, a good example is uh, Susan B. Anthony, who I talked about, who, um, uh became involved through her friendship with elizabeth Cady stanton uh and became the uh incredibly effective chief organizer of this young movement uh in the uh, 1850s um i'll give you an example by um let's get to the end of the decade uh so uh it's maybe 1857 something like that and uh everybody can feel Uh, from um, the Dred Scott decision and uh, from uh, the nature of presidential uh, contests and uh, many other events that the heated debate over slavery was becoming nearly explosive. And Susan B. Anthony, uh, whose uh, ability to organize, uh, I I can't even begin to say except I think many of your listeners will know all the many, many, many skills and details a good movement organizer requires. Well, that was Susan. And uh, her, her skills at doing this uh, for women's rights meeting and meetings and for uh, propose, for um, her friend Elizabeth Cady Stanton to come before the state legislature of New York and argue for uh, women's rights, uh was recognized by the male leaders of the abolitionist movement and so she was asked to become an organizer for the american anti-slavery society so in the last years of the pre-civil war decade she did both simultaneously she organized women's rights meetings and she organized abolitionist meetings um, by 1860 after the uh, uh election of Abraham Lincoln, which uh, rapidly turned into the secession of the Confederate States, um, she and Elizabeth and a group, an equal group of men and women, black and white, um, were organ- She organized them to uh, cross the state of New York, starting in Buffalo and ending in New York, um, on behalf of pushing the republican party which had just elected its first president to take an aggressive stance against slavery which it was not yet ready to do and so um, susan and elizabeth and um other abolitionists uh, across the state it was elizabeth she still had now at this point she had seven children the youngest of which was just one year old but it was her first time leaving home to do this kind of work um they were um, besieged by mobs uh, in all of the cities that they went to until they finally got to Albany, where the mayor, Albany, the you know the capital of the state, where the mayor uh, took charge and, and kept the mob from, uh, from uh, prohibiting their speaking. And by this time, Elizabeth had decided there was a fundamental issue she needed to ad- needed to address that went, to the core of what was going on. And she wrote a speech, she wrote a, she gave a lecture that she prepared called free speech. And that was her argument for free speech, which had been uh, sequentially uh, obliterated on the question of slavery by uh, national and state developments. Free speech, the importance of free speech for political progress is something that we can certainly appreciate and, uh, and recognize the need to defend.
0: How did the years of the Civil War and then subsequent to it, the years of Reconstruction affect the fight for women's suffrage? War is always very complicated for movements from below. Obviously, the Civil War wasn't just any war given the end of slavery. How did it affect the struggle for women's suffrage?
1: Well, it simultaneously advanced and complicated the movement for suffrage. Um, uh, first of all, let us just say that it it mobilized the entire northern population. Uh, it um, uh, Elizabeth, for instance, had uh, three grown sons who um, she uh, watched um, try to find a place for themselves in the army. Um, Susan and Elizabeth, and uh, several others, uh, I should mention Lucy Stone here, um, formed an organization mid-war called the National Women's Loyal League. And its ostensible purpose was, again, to push the Republican Party for a complete uh, position on slavery, its full and constitutional abolition. And... um, I, would, I think it's important to underline here, especially in light of later conflicts, that uh, they organized the first popular movement on behalf of a constitutional amendment, gathered uh, more than 100,000 signatures on petitions that were submitted to Congress for a constitutional amendment, and uh, are arguably responsible, certainly Charles Sumner said this was the case, responsible for the, passage and ratific- for the passage and ratification of the 13th Amendment. So um, they clearly saw the uh, abolition of slavery and the uh, restoration of black people to full American citizenship as something uh, that they both deeply believed in and was closely allied to uh, nominally free women's emancipation. That's the uh, boost. And as I said, it also brought suffrage and suffrage at the constitutional level um, into the core of politics. Prior to that, whatever efforts women had made for suffrage were state by state. The tension, the conflict, which has received so much attention, almost so much as to obliterate everything else about the 75 recent attention, uh, about the 75-year history of this movement was the conflict uh, in 1869 between one wing of the uh, s- woman suffrage forces and the post-abolition champions of of freed people's freedom, uh, a conflict over the 15th Amendment. Now, the 14th Amendment, the very, very, very important 14th Amendment, Uh, does many things. Uh, We've just learned, for instance, that it arguably prohibits people who are disloyal to the government from holding office, a a part of it that's never been used yet. Uh, But its first and crucial sentence is all persons born in the United States or naturalized therein are citizens of the United States. And that couldn't be, it's arguably the most important element of the Constitution right now, it it establishes a definition of national citizenship which didn't exist before. If you had been asked, uh, were you a citizen in 1850? You say, oh yeah, I'm a citizen of New York. Um, and um, it uh, and it established further down in that part of the amendment that all citizens of the United States were protected in their Equally protected in the privileges and immunities of citizenship. Uh, the intent there was uh, uh, there was another part of the amendment that tried to enfranchise uh, ex-slave men, freed men, um, by um, it, by a kind of back door, by saying that if any states. Um, kept someone who had the right to vote from doing so their basis of representation in other words the number of uh members of congress they had in the electors in the presidential election would be proportionally cut back i am sorry to say or tragically that was never used because of course the great majority of african-american men lost their votes in the late 19th century, and no penalty was ever accrued to the states that deprived them of that. Um, In any case, um, in order to, for complicated reasons, the 14th Amendment not only made all citizens, all persons, thus women, citizens, it also introduced the word male into the Constitution for the first time, saying that if a state deprived any male citizens of the right to vote, their, um, their uh, uh, representation, basis of representation would be proportionally cut. For all those reasons, the 14th Amendment, as much as it did, did not settle the question of black suffrage, and it was followed by the third and final of these post-war amendments, the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment, as I sort of indicated before, failed to give a robust, basis to franchise and said only that um, the Constitution prohibited states from depriving um, uh, anyone from the right to vote by race, color, and previous condition of servitude. Um, And it was understood that when that rat was ratified, the battle for reforming the Constitution and for bringing black men into the electorate and for protecting the future of the Republican Party, which uh, resided in those black men's votes, um, that was all settled, but not for the women suffragists. They were terribly disappointed that um, the word sex wasn't included in that 15th Amendment. And by the way, if you look at the wording of the 19th Amendment, which eventually enfranchised women um, Fifty years later, it's exactly the same as the Fourteenth Amendment, except instead of race, color, and previous condition of servitude, it says sex. At that point, the women's suffrage movement divided. Um, at one level, they were dividing over over the Fifteenth Amendment and whether it was whether they would endorse it. Uh, and the wing that we've been following, the one that came out of Seneca Falls, the one led by Stanton and Anthony, um, concluded that um, while they didn't, they didn't oppose the 15th Amendment, they didn't have the power to do it, nothing they could have done would have affected uh, congressional action. They did speak up publicly strongly against it. Elizabeth Stanton talked about the, the aristocracy of male suffrage arguing that, very provocatively, that enfranchising all men was created a worse tyranny than uh, an enfranchisement of white men. Um, And in this period, she began to give voice to an element of her thinking that most disturbs us 100 years, 150 years later, which is um, she repeatedly spoke about the inferiority of former slave men, and also increasingly, uh, the uh, male Im- male European immigrants who were flooding into the United States at this point, their inferiority to uh, what she called women of education and refinement, uh, who uh, she argued were more deserving, certainly were more were more deserving of the vote, and certainly should not be made the inferiors of such men by having no political rights, and such men had political rights over them. Um, Former abolitionists and other suffragists uh, remained convinced that um, the Republican Party had to stay in power to continue to protect uh, the former slave population, and that once black men had been enfranchised, former slave men had been enfranchised, women would be next. Um Whereas uh, the other wing uh, were began, began to be increasingly cynical about the Republican Party and its future. And one would have to say, making their opposition to black suffrage was a mistake. Opposing the Republican Party was not because it was rapidly on its way to becoming uh, what we know it today, uh, abandoning, any uh, responsibility for racial equality and uh, committing itself to the accumulation of wealth uh, and power in a limited sector uh, of the country and and great uh, corruption as a result. Um, But at that point, uh, in 1869, there was a famous meeting. It was uh, the meeting of an organization that Stanton and Anthony had created with the um, hope that they could create that they could bring together or keep together the uh, racial and sexual gender freedom movements in a single movement for uh, equal rights or one could say universal suffrage Um, this was a very uh, utopian movement it lasted only three years and when it broke up in the wake of this battle over the 15th amendment uh, uh, its its central moment was a conflict, much much uh, echoed in recent years, between Douglas and Stanton, uh, with uh, uh, Douglas arguing that at this point uh, black people in the South were the victims of terror, Ku Klux Klan, uh, black women were being raped, men were being lynched, um, and if If and when, he would say, when women, this was happening to women, then uh, their situation would be equal. Someone in the audience says, I just have one question, are all the black people men? Um, In any case, there is a a split, this chaotic conflict uh, broke the woman suffrage movement in two and it had two really rival and in some ways enemy wings for the next 20 years. The bad part about that was that it fractured the movement at a very early time. The good part about that was that it freed uh, these two sides to go in very different directions.
0: Historian Ellen Carol Bois is my guest. We're discussing her book, Suffrage, Women's Long Battle for the Vote, that's published by Simon Schuster and at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. She's distinguished research professor in the history department at UCLA. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you were just talking about the way that in the aftermath of the Civil War, reconstruction, the abolition of slavery, that the movement for women's suffrage fractured into two different camps. Can you describe the orientation of of each side of that split?
1: Yes, well, let me just underline that uh, together, these camps meant that the suffrage movement was really moving forward as an independent movement, no longer as a junior partner. Uh, So, uh, in some ways, we can state the beginning of the suffrage movement itself from this period. One Wing was centered in Boston and was led by Lucy Stone and her husband, Henry Blackwell, Julia Ward Howe, and a few other people. It was committed to suffrage and suffrage alone. It was a single issue movement. And it was, although this was not explicit, its political orientation was to keep the suffrage movement from any conflict with the Republican Party. So what this meant is that their focus for suffrage, they... they They did not focus on getting an amendment to the Constitution or getting women enfranchised at the national level. They focused on a a state-by-state enfranchisement. Um, uh, I'm going to jump ahead for a second and say um, the first victory in this way was in 1893 in Colorado, where the women of Colorado got, because the men of Colorado amended their con- the state constitution, got full rights to vote, including for president of the United States. Uh, so that uh, wh- whereas the 19th Amendment was still far off, the women of Colorado and other states, uh, our own California, began to have the right to vote uh, all the way up to the presidency. Uh, the other wing that was led by Stanton and Anthony uh, absorbed the sort of general utopian radical enthusiasm of the late Reconstruction years, paid a lot of attention, again, this is very important to us now, paid a lot of attention to questions of women's freedom at the personal, indeed the bodily level. And Stanton began what was a lifetime campaign uh, for, uh, uh, legally for uh, reform in the right to divorce, uh, which was very difficult to obtain sort of socially and politically and philosophically for women's rights to control their own bodies now this uh argument for uh she called it self-sovereignty uh was the ancestor of our reproductive rights movement although it uh it it did not take the same form um abortion was not uh, a primary issue in fact abortion was being rolled back with increasing uh, uh, laws, state and federal, uh, against it in these years. Um, But uh, for Stanton and for many of the women uh, influenced by her, uh, at this point, the right to women's freedom to control their own bodies, especially in the context of marriage, was the uh, sort of almost the shadow movement of the suffrage movement. Um, so I would say that that, that, that um, uh, let's, let's call it sexual radicalism, which is what it was, uh, was the other enormous difference between the two wings. And the Boston wing um, saw. Uh, what was happening uh, in the Stan Anthony Wing, which was located in New York, or centered in New York, um, saw it as immoral, literally, and feared that those kinds of arguments would drive women away. So you, you can see here the beginning of a kind of fundamental strategic uh, separation in the long history of women's rights between uh, uh, focused moderate demands uh, and a broad, uh, multi-issue, radical program. Uh, and the question, of course, being what, what is going to attract women? Uh, uh, a broader sense of what they needed for their freedom or a less revolutionary approach to it, step by step?
0: Well, and let me ask you about that and, and about the people who were then attracted to that movement. You describe in the book, the backlash that happened in the US following Reconstruction, you know, the rise of Jim Crow racism and kind of unfettered capitalism. And yet, in the late 19th century, there was then a surge of class struggle, pushing back against those forces, and a revival of the prospects for female suffrage, including from new ranks of women workers. Can you tell us about what was going on? broadly on the social level at that time? In the late 19th century, the, um, the big development was
1: that a, a kind of new era in political radicalism coming located mostly in the Midwest and the West and um, associated with the populist or People's Party. They were never able to elect a president. They were never able to follow in the footsteps of the Republican Party and elect a president. But they were very influential in many states, um, including the ones I already mentioned from uh, Colorado um, through California. And they were able to wield political, the populists were able to wield political power, and they ha, in the state level, in the West and Midwest, and they had a, a principled commitment to, mo- to democracy and a specific commitment to woman suffrage. And so that began to change the situation. And starting in this period, gradually, more and more and more states changed their constitutions, even as the US Constitution was frozen and not open to change. Uh, So that by um, uh, 1910, 1912, more than a dozen states had women as full members of their electorates. Very important. Okay. Now, you asked me about changing class aspects. Um, and um, uh, starting in the late 19th century and really taking off in another period of growing progressivism, actually called the progressive movement, um, women were now entering the wage labor force, they'd always been there, but in larger and larger numbers as American industrialization uh, progressed. Uh, they, uh, Women, and especially immigrant women, were a crucial part of certain key industries, especially uh, what were called the needle trades, making cloth, making clothes, making shoes, um, also making hats, making books etc and um, slowly they began to work their way into the labor movement the male dominated labor movement which is not particularly uh, friendly to them Uh, women like black men were considered to be uh, threats to male workers uh, control over the labor force but uh, gradually women organized uh, the most famous uh, example of this was in the uh, women's clothing industry in New York State, uh, which um, became a national um, center of organizing uh, in 1909, when uh, the women of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory began a general strike in the industry. And then in 1911, when the incomplete uh, results of their victory laid the groundwork for a terrible industrial fire, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, which killed, uh, I think, 216 women. At that point, women uh, f- women began to uh, uh, flood into the labor movement. Their leaders uh, began to recognize that they needed the help of, they would call them leisure class women, middle and upper class women, Uh, to offset the obstacles of trade union men uh, and an alliance built at that time, a cross-class alliance uh, of working class and middle and upper class women, which certainly powered the suffrage movement to its conclusion. We can see this in the fact that in New York, but in many other cities, this was the period of mass protests and parades on behalf of women's suffrage. They could not have happened were it not for working class women who provided the numbers and also the confidence to march in public, uh, which was still a little frightening to respectable middle-class women. And they brought a new era of suffrage militants, I think would be the right word to say, militants into the movement in in its progressive era years.
0: Well, tell us more about that, the sort of tactics that were used. Of course, in those first decades of the early 20th century, it was a time of great radicalism and labor action, as you've been describing, um, not just in the U.S., but around the world. In the U.K., sectors of the women's suffrage movement were quite militant. How do you see the kind of spectrum of politics within the fight for women's suffrage in the U.S. and the kind of tactics and strategies that different parts of the movement embraced.
1: So uh, now we're uh, in a period um, starting in about 1913 where the uh, sort of political forces on behalf of women's suffrage are accelerating. And the question is how to press forward uh, in the face of continuing obstacles, particular obstacles, I might say, are that um, the Southern states, the Southern senators and representatives in Congress were direly opposed to woman suffrage on the grounds that it would um, enfranchise black women. And they had just spent 20 years making sure black men couldn't use their right to vote. Uh, They often did so with uh, sort of sexual Uh, Innuendo, And it would be a lot harder to keep women out of the electorate by such methods. Uh, So they were really the obstacles. Southern Democrats were the obstacles in Congress. And uh, starting in 1913, basically they had a president. We think of Woodrow Wilson as a progressive, which he was in many ways, but he was a Southern Democrat. He was from Virginia. And he was also a Southern gentleman and was not at all um, taken by the aggressive uh, feminists of the suffrage movement. Um, And so at this point, we have another uh, division. It wasn't acrimonious particularly, but it was profoundly strategic. Uh, One wing, uh, and they uh, were the women I call the militants, They were led by a woman named Alice Paul, and um, they imitated, they learned their tactics from um, uh, the women of the British suffrage movement, which involved mass demonstrations and uh, nonviolent civil disobedience, and sometimes violent civil, civil disobedience. The American militants never were violent in the way that the British were but they were civil disobedience and they ended up being arrested and imprisoned uh, in Washington DC. And their sort of vision was that uh, the, uh, the deep offense of imprisoning American women for demanding the right to vote uh, would, uh, would embarrass uh, and shake up the opposition, and it would would break open uh, the congressional impasse. There was another wing, and this one was led by Carrie Chapman Catt, two different organizations. And it was a lobbying wing. Uh, they had an incredibly effective uh, structure for lobbying Congress um, and uh, trained uh, a whole core of women in the, in the uh, skills of lobbying, um, including uh, finding ways to, uh, uh, to get a little more sympathy from Wilson himself. Uh, so on the one hand, we might say that both of these uh, approaches made their contribution. But my argument is that the uh, crucial context for the final enfranchisement of women was the First World War. In fact, it might have been the case that if the war hadn't broken out, women might have been enfranchised a little earlier. But uh, starting in 1917, when the US entered an already roiling conflict in Europe, uh, women's suffrage was put on hold by the uh, the lobbyist wing, um, some of them became nurses and went to Europe. When the uh, influenza outbreak occurred in 1918, they did incredible labor as nurses uh, to care for the sick. Um, And uh, when the war was over, they felt that they had earned the right to vote. Uh, At that point, Wilson, who was, uh, his power, his presidential power was declining. He was already sick. He probably had the flu. Uh, He would soon uh, get a stroke and basically be out of commission. Um, He supported a constitutional amendment, but he was too weak to make much of a difference. And so the final battle took about a year and a half. It got through Congress early 1919. An interesting fact here is that uh, when the bill to pass, Uh, an amendment out of Congress and onto the states for ratification. When it was brought before Congress, it was brought before Congress by the only woman who was a member of Congress. Her name was Jeanette Rankin and she was from Montana. And uh, it's important to underline this because it really points to the fact that women were already figuring as political forces she'd been elected by the women of montana because the women of montana like colorado and california and other states had full voting rights and they voted her into congress Uh, and she was given the uh uh the privilege of introducing the amendment it made its way quickly through the house much more slowly through the senate again because of the power of southern democratic senators but finally it goes out to ratification and uh i i spend a fair amount of time in the book um underlining how touch and go the ratification battle was there was nothing inevitable about the ratification of the 19th amendment it it could have been defeated at that point and if it had been defeated at that point it would have been a long time before it came up again because the united states was moving into a very conservative period dominated by conservative republicans like Hoover and Coolidge. The battle came down to uh, 37 states were needed to ratify. And for a long time, there were only 36. And the last two possibilities were oddly enough, Connecticut, which was controlled by very conservative Republicans, who at this point, their fear was not black women voting, their fear was white women wage earners voting, Um, and Tennessee. A uh, southern state, or actually a border state, uh, and it was uh, famously, surprisingly, and historically Tennessee that became the thirty seventh state. And there is, um, I tell in brief, in uh, I briefly tell the story, the dramatic story of how a young man became the deciding vote uh, in this uh, Tennessee legislature because his mother told him. Uh, to support Mrs. Catt and at that point, the 19th Amendment was ratified. There were still battles against it in the courts. When you read this period, you see that just about everything we're going through has its antecedents in earlier periods,
0: but it survived. The fight for women's enfranchisement in the US went on for 75 years, but For much of that time, it was dogged with the notion that it was a single issue movement, ignoring other claims for social justice. Let me end by asking you what you think about that characterization. Well, at some
1: level, I do agree with it, but what I would say is that it trailed behind it. The women who were brought into politics and to uh, sort of radical ideas, Uh, filled other movements during and after the suffrage movement. Uh, I'll mention uh, three. One was uh, the birth control movement. Um, Margaret Sanger began as a suffrage organizer. Um, And uh, it was the kind of shadow movement behind uh, suffrage and uh, motivated by the notion that once women had the right to vote, uh, there were other dimensions, more personal dimensions of freedom for women, and it echoed the period that I talked about in the 1870s. A second movement was the uh, labor movement, uh, the AFL and then the CIO, and it is full of women who uh, got their original training in uh, the suffrage movement. Sort of related to this, when, once we get into the Roosevelt administration, the, Fred, the FDR administration, uh, the kind of what's called the sort of shadow women's cabinet uh, around uh, Eleanor uh, Roosevelt, who were responsible for a lot of the social welfare dimensions of the New Deal. Uh, most of them had themselves apprenticed in the suffrage movement. And finally, um, there was uh, the infusion of black women into the, the struggling civil rights movement. Uh, I'll just name one person. Uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, who was the most high-placed Black woman in the uh, New Deal, uh, began her political career by uh, defending the rights of Black women in Florida to vote. If the movement for women's rights itself went into a kind of uh, doldrums in this period, uh, other movements, other progressive movements enjoyed a new infusion of women's leadership and
0: politics. Ellen Bois, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Sasha. Ellen Carol Bois is the author of Suffrage, Women's Long Battle for the Vote, which we've been discussing today. You can find a link to that book at againstthegrain.org. She's the author of numerous books about women's history and is distinguished research professor in the history department at UCLA. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and CS Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.